Greetings, New Hope Church. It is so great to see you on this uh, first Sunday in December. Can you believe that? Here we are right in the uh, cusp of Christmas and December, the holidays, and uh, it is so exciting to be with you as we gather here to worship today. For those of you who are joining us as part of our online community, welcome. Uh, It's so great to connect with you, and whether we are far away or right here in this space, it is the shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes us to be one united people. And we praise God for him. He is worthy of praise. Do you believe he's worthy of praise? Yes, absolutely he is. And say, I want to just give a shout out for those new members that are part of our church family. You saw the names up there. We've got quite a few of them, and we just had a terrific Exploring New Hope uh, couple classes here uh, these recent weeks, and a lot of fun engaging uh, these new members and getting to know their stories, and and, uh, just it's such a privilege to be with them as uh, we're part together of the family of God. Uh, my name is Matthew, and as I, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just, I'm so thankful, so grateful that uh, we can connect. You know, one of the most cherished Christmas carols is Joy to the World, right? We all know this a little bit. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Now what happens when I start singing like that is my beautiful Krista sits where she sits and she goes, oh, he's singing. You know, so uh, yes, I did just do that and I'm sure she just did that as well. And, uh, but you know what? We love this song. We love this hymn, uh, this carol. I, you may not know this, but it was written in 1719 by a man named Isaac Watts. And Isaac Watts was a prolific songwriter and a deep theologian. And Isaac Watts, you may not know this either, but the, the, the theological roots of joy to the world, the theological roots are buried into the soils of Psalm 98. Psalm 98. And uh, it's a remarkable thing what Isaac Watts has done, and it's really a gift to the church as a whole that so much of Christian hymnody, as well as the great praise and worship songs even today, are, are really rooted well in the scriptures. There is an intentional effort. Let us have these things reflect the word of God, and, and certainly joy to the world does that. In fact, uh, listen to just some of, of these uh, verses from, from Psalm 98. I'm just going to read not all of them, just a few of them here, and I, I want you to, to pay attention to what, what uh, this, the writer of this psalm uh, put down. Here, here it goes. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the eyes of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity Now, you know what's not there? Now, remember, it is this that is the soil bed for the roots to a song like Joy to the World. But did you notice what's not there? There's no allusion to uh, a miraculous birth 
or there's no mention of angels, no mention of shepherds. What we have instead here in Psalm 98 is uh, references to salvation and the nations and judgment. Now that's a different take on a Christmas carol. And it makes us wonder, what is going on here? Now please understand me. I absolutely believe joy to the world is a masterful Christmas carol. Welcoming our great God and King to the earth and all of us proclaiming joyously that he has come. Absolutely. But you know what? Please hear me. More than being a masterful Christmas carol, it is a powerful call to remember that yes, he has come once, but Jesus is coming again. He's coming in glory, and he's gonna come triumphantly, and he's gonna come in power, amen? And this, this song, Joy to the World, Oh, if you sing it with that in mind, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. My mind is taken right away to the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 19. And I just want you to listen to just some of the words that flow from the pen of the uh, Apostle John who put all of this together, uh, the book of Revelation together. He's swept up in this heavenly scene. He's soaking in all that God wants to show him about things to come. And here is, here's what John saw. This is so great. Then I saw, verse 11 of Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Time out a minute. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if, if you have been born again, guess what? That's you right there. You're on those horses. You're part of that great vast throng riding triumphantly as our Lord Jesus returns in his glory. Well, as we continue here, as we continue here, uh, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. He is the mighty God who's going to return in power. This is incredible. Can you just, just imagine it? Put yourself there. Envision. Envision what will one day unfold. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. The earth receives its king. And I will tell you straight up, oh, I can't wait to be counted among those who are riding with the great and mighty Jesus. Not, 
not uh, brazenly in some, some uh, fashion that is, that is unkind, but in humility and triumphant joy, for the Lord has come to make all things new. Finally, all will be made well. Oh, my goodness, what a glorious day that will be. And mark my words, as I said a moment ago, I must say it again. If you have a relationship with Jesus, this is, hear me, this is your story too. Do you hear that? This is your story as well. This is what you anticipate, you imagine. This is what you look forward to every bit as much as I do. Now, you know, the uh, people in Malachi's day, they had expectations that God is on the move. The people in Malachi's day, they had expectations that God was working and doing something. The people in Malachi's day, they waited on the Lord. They didn't know what was all coming. They didn't have maybe the fuller revelation that you and I have, but they were waiting with expectation. Theirs was a difficult era in which to live. They resided under the heavy heels of these tyrannical Persian kings and under the heavy heels of these criminal local politicians and under the heavy heels of these wayward priests who were more prone to use and abuse their position than be helpful to God's people. As a matter of fact, I have this understanding that the people of Malachi's day, they would step back and they would look at the landscape of their era and they would think to themselves that the shadows are getting darker and the thorns are getting sharper and the curse is getting stronger. And you know what? When I step back and just survey the landscape of our own time, that's the conclusion I have about our day and age as well that the shadows are getting deeper and darker and that the thorns are getting sharper and that the curse is getting stronger. And so it is with the people of Malachi's day. I anticipate and long for Jesus, God, to come. I anticipate and long for God to be on the move and to do his thing, to bring all to a fitting Conclusion so as to inaugurate the fitting beginning of his goodness throughout all of creation and beyond. I can't wait for that day. And the people of Malachi's day, they longed for that as well. The difference between them and you and me is this. Oh, they longed for it. But you and I, from where we stand, we get to look back through the aeons. We get to look back through the generations. We get to see the fuller story as things have unfolded. And so it is. They were anticipating that God would do something, and their anticipation led to such great truths as we see in joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Because their anticipation gave way to the first advent, the coming of Jesus, and his life, and his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection. 
But what we have is not only the clarity of those events, which for them, they could not even begin to imagine. They just knew God was coming, but they didn't know what it would look like. We know what it looks like, but with them of old, we with them can look forward based on that first coming and imagine the fuller revelation as we just read, the second coming, the glorious return of our Lord in triumph. Joy to the world for sure. Let the earth receive her king for sure. And you know, the last words of the book of Malachi set this up. You may not know this, but the last words of the book of Malachi wonderfully set this understanding up for us. I want to invite you to look there. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. These are the last three verses of the book of Malachi. And what we're going to see as we look at these words here is we're going to see a people anticipating God on the move. And we're going to learn from these words. Hear me now. This is very important what I'm about to say. We're going to learn from these words what it looks like for us to live as a people anticipating. What might it look like for you and me to live as a people anticipating God on the move? Well, Let's pay attention here. Malachi chapter four. Listen carefully as I read verses four, five, and six. God says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now these are some hard words, but they're also beautifully grace-filled words. Let me share with you what I think is a good shorthand summary You'll see it on the screen right here in front of you, so so pay careful attention to what is written there. Uh, When I look at this passage, I imagine it's a simple, I imagine these words revealing a plea, a plea for God's people to stay true to God's ways. It's a prophecy, a prophecy that a messenger like Elijah will prepare the world for the Lord's arrival. And it is a promise, a promise of good news, that is the gospel, of good news sufficient to bring blessing far as the curse is found. Sufficient for sure. Something that rejoices even the most weary Soul, God can do that, and he does do that. And we're told here, he will do this. He will do these things. Now, uh, what I want to do is say, okay, so if that's a summary here, we have this call to, to uh, be sensitive to the word of God. We have this uh, clarity that a prophet uh, like Elijah is going to rise up, a messenger is going to rise up and, and help us prepare the way for the Lord. And, and we have this opportunity to rejoice because God is so good that when he sees his gospel having effect, he will withhold judgment, thus the statement, lest I come and 
bring destruction. Wow, that's so powerful. And from these and from this summary, we understand how we might live as we anticipate. So what I'd like to do is turn that into some specific application for you and for me. And I want to share with you three, three invitations here. Three invitations from these verses. Invitations to anticipate well, to anticipate robustly, to anticipate in a mature and substantive way the Lord's coming. And here's the first one. Number one, remember the word of God. Remember the word of God. We see it right here in Malachi chapter four, verse four. It is very clear. Remember the law of my servant Moses. And the reference to the law of Moses is from Malachi's perspective and the, the, the day in which Malachi and the people of God lived. It is a reference to the word of God as they understood it at that time, as it was available to them at that time. It was the law given to Moses in the desert places when the people were gathered there uh, having left Egypt and on their way to the promised land. It is the additional uh, writings of the, the histories and the prophets and the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs and so forth. All of this, the law and the prophets as it were, uh, is the Bible for the people of Malachi's day. And we see some shorthand reference to it there also in verse four, the so-called statutes and rules. Or you might think of them as the precepts and the just decrees of God. Hear me now, these precepts and just decrees of God are designed so that there will be human flourishing that brings great glory to the name of God. That is the purpose of the word of God, to help us flourish as people, and by so doing, we bring him great glory because we are now in alignment with his purposes. We understand his heart. We are about his mission. And we understand who we are not and how through the work of Jesus Christ, ultimately, uh, we might find redemption and be swept up into his purposes and plans. Now, we must be a people who are remembering the word of God so that we can live accordingly, live according to his standards, his delights. You know, New Hope Church is part of a movement called the Evangelical Free Church of America. There's about 1,700 churches scattered around North America and others across the globe. And uh, what these churches commit to, among many things, is this important understanding. We need to be people of the book. People of the book, a people who are uh, consumed with this love letter called the Bible from the heart of God right into our own minds and hearts so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We want to be a people of the book. Little boys and girls, as you're sitting out here, as you're watching right now, let me invite you. You be a person of the book. Know your Bibles. Understand the Bible. Spend time reading it. Those of us who aren't so little anymore, those of us who have a little more miles on us, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and uh, friends and family, uh, wherever you are, whoever you are, listen to me here. Listen to me. We need to be people of the book. We need to be folks in the word of God. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, 
there in that borrowed dining room. We'll talk about it more here in just a little while. He prayed to his father on behalf of his disciples, on behalf of those of us who follow him. And one of the things he said beautifully in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 17, he says, Father, sanctify them, that is to say my disciples, you and me, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. And the idea is, by the word sanctify, Lord, make them holy. Make them set apart. Make them your unique people, washed in my blood, uniquely called to be part of your kingdom, your divine nation, people who are washed and made whole. And it's the word of God that is instrumental in helping that happen. So Jesus prays that we would be a people washed and sanctified by the truth, the word of God. May that be you. May that be me. May we be a people remembering the word of God. One last item on that. The word remember in the Hebrew language is, is extremely important to the Hebrew culture. It's the Hebrew word zakar. And it is, uh, it's the reason why when you read through the, uh, the Old Testament, you see all these big lists of names. And even on the front end of the New Testament, you see such. It's because the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, it was so important to them to remember the stories, remember the people, remember the moments when God did something remarkable in our lives. When God was on the move, remember, remember, remember. But understand, it is not an intellectual descent to some, or an intellectual ascent to some historical moment. It's, it's more than that. To remember is to revisit with the idea of then acting on what I learned. Okay, do you hear that? So we're not just simply recalling facts. We are catalyzing ourselves to be a different people based on what we learn. That's what the remembrance invites us to be about. So we need to be a people of the book who remember well and therefore are transformed and different. All right, so that's number one. Number two, what we see here from the, from the passage. Not only do we remember the word, but we also regard the messenger. Verse five introduces us to this idea of a messenger like Elijah who's going to come and set the table, as it were, for what we later know is the return of our Lord or the coming of our Lord. Now, let me just mention who this Elijah is because not all of us understand this or, or know who it is. Elijah was a great prophet in the more ancient days of Israel's history. He would go toe-to-toe with the prophets and priests of Baal, one of the great idols that was worshipped by the people at the time. And he worked feverishly, uh, fiercely to direct the people and their hearts to the one true God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the God of creation, the God of all power and authority. And he was quite fruitful in this. Lots of people turned, the nation did turn, but boy, it was costly for this Elijah. And I would commend you, go back and read 1 Kings, particularly chapter 18 and some of the chapters that follow that. Uh, in the New Testament, the apostle James uh, mentions uh, this Elijah. In uh, James chapter five, this is what he says, uh, referencing a particular uh, moment in Elijah's story. Elijah, he says, was a man with a nature like ours. 
And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now this is a reference to Elijah saying, look, God, don't let it rain for this long period of time so that these people will learn to cry out to you. Right now, they need to know that you're the one true God, and they don't believe it. And so you need to rock their world. And then, so God did withhold the rain, and then at a certain point in time, Elijah prayed, Lord, let it rain so these people will know you. And the rains came coming down. And this was used of God to really soften and turn the hearts of the Israelite people. Now that's the power that this man had in those days. That's the reputation he has. And what, what is being said here by God in Malachi 4 is there's going to be one like Elijah who's going to rise up and uh, he's going to restore things, it says. He's going to restore things. He's going to do a wonder work. Uh, and he's going to do it before, notice this, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, this is really important here. Let me just, let me push this further. In Malachi chapter 3, we spent some time talking about a messenger who's going to come uh, preparing the way for the Lord. The text is quite clear about that. And we proved that it was John the Baptist who was going to come. And next weekend, Lord willing, we're going to do a deep dive on John the Baptist as part of the Christmas story when we step into our Christmas series. But here in Malachi chapter 4, uh, we see something that's a little different. In chapter 3, it seemed a reference to this, uh, and we learned that it was a reference to this first coming of Jesus. And John the Baptist points the way, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist's story is intertwined with Jesus' miraculous birth and so forth. But when we look in Malachi chapter 4, it seems to be referencing a different time. The text makes it clear, this is before the awesome day of the Lord. And so we pause and we go, wait a minute. If John the Baptist was like an Elijah who came for that time introducing Jesus and his earthly ministry that led up to the cross and resurrection, well, what is this, what is this messenger representing, this Elijah-like figure? What is the great day of the Lord? It is a direct reference to the end times, a direct reference to the glorious return of Christ. It is kind of like that, that carol, Joy to the World. It has both effects. It can be about the first, but in this case, it's largely about the second. And even Jesus affirms this. Uh, if you'll uh, consider with me for a moment, Matthew chapter 17. So one day, Jesus and some of his disciples are walking down a hillside uh, in Galilee, and uh, they enter into a conversation about John the Baptist and about some of the prophetic things that the Bible offers. The disciples asked, according to Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, the disciples asked, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered, well, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Now, that's future. Notice that. From, from Jesus' perspective, that's future. He goes on, verse 12, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. Wait a minute. Now that's, that's past. All right, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man, referring to himself, will suffer uh, similarly. 
And the text says in verse 13, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist, referencing the past. But notice, Jesus is also referencing an Elijah-like figure for the future, one who will restore. What in the world? Well, the book of Revelation helps us with this. So Revelation chapter 11, and I can't belabor it because the time is just doesn't allow for that, but, but in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, we're introduced to these so-called two witnesses. Some of you have heard about this. For others of you, this is brand new stuff. I have no idea what you're talking about, Pastor. That's okay. Well, here in Revelation chapter 11, uh, we read these verses. I'll just share a couple of them. God says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, And then we read this verse. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That sounds familiar. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, in the book of Revelation, these two witnesses rise up right on the cusp. Hear me now, people. Right on the cusp of the glorious return of Jesus Christ in power and triumph. I, this is just me, I tend to take these things literally. And so when I look at Revelation chapter 11 and I see these two witnesses, I imagine them likely being Moses and Elijah that God has brought to the scene for this witnessing. And I justify that based on what I read there where it says uh, one of them will have power to shut the sky so it won't rain. Well, we just read about Elijah doing that very thing in the ancient days. And James, Jesus' brother, by the way, in uh, James chapter 5, affirms it. The other, I think, is Moses, because what did Moses do before Pharaoh but turn the uh, the Nile River into blood? And, And we see this reference to the waters becoming blood. I think it's a, personally, a literal uh, expectation of things to come. However, please understand, I got plenty of wonderful friends that are really astute with the Word of God that would imagine a more figurative or metaphorical approach to this. And that's okay. And what they might imagine is that God's people, disciples of Jesus, are in those days living on mission, living with gospel purpose. They are witnesses to the coming of Christ in a difficult era. And that may well be. Either way, literal or figurative, the expectation is there will be messengers and witnesses that prepare the way for Jesus' second coming. Here is the question for you and me. Will you be counted among those messengers? Do you hear that question, friends? Give me some feedback. Do you hear that? All right. Will you be counted among those? That's the real question here. It's not so much the identity of those personalities. The real issue is, will I be counted as someone who will give witness to the fact that Jesus is coming again? Will I be faithful and fierce like the Elijah of old? Will I be faithful and fierce like the Moses of old? Will I be faithful and fierce like the John the Baptist of old? And a whole long list of other great saints, women and men who faithfully give witness to God on the move. Will that be me? You may not know this, 
but the very name Malachi, do you know what it means? Literally, it means my messenger. In the Hebrew, it means my messenger. And the question is, could, it, could God say of you, that's my messenger? Would God say of you, that right there, that woman, that, that lady right there, she's my messenger. That little boy right there, he's my messenger. Little boys, little girls, listen to me wherever you are. You may be some of the most bold messengers for Jesus. That little girl, she's my messenger. Oh my goodness, that one right there, that man over there, he's my messenger. Could you have Malachi emblazoned on your forehead as proof that you are a messenger of God? In the spirit of Elijah and Moses and John the Baptist giving testimony that Jesus is coming soon. Listen to me here. Right now we are going to happily sing. We sing joy to the world. Christmas carols. The Lord has come. Praise God for that. The question for you and me is, are we going to embody the spirit of that carol? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king every single day of the year as a witness to the idea that he's coming in glory and we better be ready. That is the burden that you and I have to step into. And we don't have to do it by ourselves. The Holy Spirit empowers us and guides us. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Number three, if the first one is we need to remember the word, the second one is we need to regard the messengers, including ourselves. The third one is this, we must repeat the sounding joy. Rejoice, praise, worship, celebrate this great King Jesus, this God who's on the move. This God who is so gracious and merciful that as he sees the gospel having its effect so that there is healing and reconciliation and there is unity and harmony among his people, he will withhold his judgment like he did there in Nineveh years earlier through the prophet Jonah. He will withhold his judgment like he did when he looks at that Samaritan village who had rejected him and his disciples are saying, shall we call fire down from the sky? No, understand, we have opportunity to praise and worship, to celebrate, to glorify, to repeat the sounding joy. We have opportunity to do that because God Almighty brings forward a gospel message that reconciles sinners to God and to one another through the blood of Jesus Christ and our trust in him. And that is powerful. And we see it there in Malachi chapter four, verse six. Uh, this whole picture of, of fathers and children coming together, if it can happen in those intimate family contexts, it can happen anywhere. And, and we see the Apostle Paul speak of it in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to these words, verse 17. You'll see it on your screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Read into that. We're messengers. We're messengers for him. 
for Christ, God making his appeal through us, through you, through me, through you and you and you. We implore you on behalf of Christ then to be reconciled to God. Now this is the gospel having powerful effect because of the death and resurrection, the the work of our Lord Jesus. And you know, listen to me here as we wrap up. Please hear this. (laughs) You know, the very last word, talk about celebrating, the very last word, the book of Malachi, the very last word, now, you and I look at it in, our, in the translation I read, and it's the word destruction. But you know, in the Hebrew, it's the word haram, and it literally means curse. The very last word of the English Bible, or of the English Old Testament, is curse. And really, of the Hebrew Old Testament, Malachi is not the last book in the Hebrew uh, uh, Old Testament, but, but it is uh, the last of the prophets, and that sort of scene is the last section. And so, in fact, the last word of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is the word curse. And then the people of Malachi, the people of God, they all wait, get this, 400 years for God to do something. And meanwhile, as they're waiting, the shadows are getting darker and the thorns are getting sharper and the curse feels stronger. But then the very first word of Jesus when he starts his public ministry, Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, the very first word of Jesus after 400 years of the people sitting in the curse, the very first word of Jesus is blessed. Isn't that great? From curse to blessing because Jesus shows up on the scene the first time. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what the very last words of Jesus are in the entire Bible? Very last words of Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Very last words of Jesus. I am coming soon. And so we see him, when he shows up on the scene the first time, he brings blessing that swamps the curse. But the story doesn't end there because he's coming again. And so we can sing joy to the world and talk about Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Praise God for the blessing of that, blessing as far as the curse is found. But friends, he's coming again. And so we need to be a people Believing that, anticipating that, living in light of that. And the invitation here is to do so by remembering the word of God and regarding our roles as ambassadors and messengers telling the story and preparing the world so that it can be said that this joy to the world the Lord has come is not merely a Christmas reflection, but it is the compass of our lives because he's on the move and he's coming again in glory and power. Oh, celebration for sure. Remembrance for sure. This is why we celebrate communion. You see, on that same night when Jesus says, sanctify them with your truth, your word is truth. He and his disciples were gathered there to celebrate the Passover feast. And you know We don't talk a lot about it, but that feast includes four special cups. We'll talk about one of them 
the most prominent one in a moment, but the fourth one is known as the cup of consummation. And Jesus tells his disciples at the end of their evening, he says, that cup I will drink with you in my kingdom. And so suddenly we realize the Lord's Supper also reminds us, not only did he come the first time, he's coming a second time. And, and he's gonna not drink that cup that is prescribed until he comes in glory with us. Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Oh, wow. But in the meantime, on that night, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, this is my body broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And the disciples thought, for surely, they thought that was so strange. Because what they knew was that was the time of the unity loaf when the people of God celebrated that they were united together as children under God's banner. But no, Jesus took it in a different direction. And here's why. He understood that in a matter of hours from that moment, his body would be broken on that cross. And it's a remarkable thing to me that this sinless, holy Jesus became broken so all of us sinful, wicked people could be made whole. That is the purpose. And then, that third cup, the cup of redemption. To redeem means to purchase, to buy, to secure. And what it did was when the folks took of it, they remembered when God in his mercy moved to the land of Egypt and he wiped out the Egyptian slaveholders. Uh, he, he judged them and punished them for their treatment of the, of the Hebrew people. And God had told the Hebrew people, you take lambs and you take the blood of those lambs and you put it on the doorposts of your homes. And when I see the blood covering your home, I will pass over those homes. And you will be saved because of the blood that was shed. And so at the Passover meal, the disciples and Jesus, they're there. He takes the goblet of wine. He passes it, the cup of redemption. And he says to them, they're thinking the lambs in Egypt. He says to them, you know, this is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you will in remembrance of me. He's telling them, look, those lambs, they bought grace for bits of time. But I'm the Lamb of God, and my blood cleanses for all eternity. My blood makes you new. And he understood that our sense, his blood would be shed on that cross. And you've heard me say it countless times. There is no more precious commodity in all of time and space and beyond than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God, praise God. You have your elements in your hands. Take them these next few moments as we worship. Confess any sin. Thank the Lord Jesus for his abundant mercy, for his shed blood, his broken body for you. Celebrate him. Remember him. Remember him.